Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. My goal, example purposes only, is 15 grand a month passive income or something like that upon retiring. Okay, cool. So here comes the shiny object, right? It's a cryptocurrency that doesn't pay any cash flow. Does that help me? It really doesn't. And so if you can stay true to your goals and your criteria, it makes it a lot easier. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to have Travis Watts with us. He is a full-time passive investor and has been investing in real estate since 2009 in multifamily, single-family, and vacation rentals. Travis is also the Director of Investor Relations at Ashcroft Capital. He dedicates his time to educating others who are looking to be more hands-off in real estate. And Travis was, in May 2020, the first ever guest for our monthly meetings at Left Field Investors, before we had a brand, before we were called Left Field Investors, he was the first one that came on to our little Zoom meeting with, I think, 10 or 12 people. And we are so grateful. That really kicked it all off and helped us realize what Left Field Investors could be. So Travis, it's about time we had you on the podcast. We're super happy to have you, but welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for the invite. And yes, I'm very grateful for helping you open up the whole segment. You guys have just truly evolved into something else. And I love it. I love your mission. I love what you do. We chat at conferences. We speak on stage together. This is good stuff, man. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. And I really appreciate the way you give back with, you know, we were talking earlier about the number of podcasts you've been on and and the help you, you give investors. So can you start, just tell us about your journey into passive investing, how you got to where you are and what your kind of financial journey was. Sure. Happy to. Yeah. I dove into real estate in 2009. It was a very scary time to get started. A lot of people look at that the opposite and say, oh, what great timing you had. But you got to remember 
the markets are melting down. The headlines are get out of real estate. I was talking to friends and family. Should I rent or should I buy? Because I was coming out of college and they're like, you'd be crazy to buy because we just lost half our home's value. That would be the stupidest thing you could do. And so I had to really go against the grain. I had to kind of take the noise, set it aside, look at the fundamentals. And when I say fundamentals, (laughs) all I really knew, I was pretty naive, but I knew this, the house I was buying had previously sold for about $170,000 and was on the market for $95,000. And I thought, if nothing else, I'm buying it at some kind of discount, right? And what I was going to do with it, what I ended up doing with it, is house hacking it, which means that I had a roommate. It was in a college town. I had just come out of college. I knew there was a big demand for people needing specifically a furnished bedroom for about 600 bucks a month. And so that's what I did with it. It was a little two bed, one bath, shared bathroom. Don't recommend that with a stranger. And, (laughs) you know, that got the wheels turning about passive investing. I thought, At the time, I wasn't making much money actively at my W-2 job. And I thought, this is pretty cool because each month someone's handing me a check for 600 bucks. I didn't have to work for that money. It was the real estate that allowed that to happen. And so from there, it's like, hey, how can I scale this up? How can I get 50 of these checks for 600 bucks, right? Instead of just the one (laughs) without owning a hundred unit house, I guess, and a little mansion. So I did a lot of things, Jim. I did fix and flips. I did vacation rentals. I did the house hacking thing. I did a lot of things hands-on and actively. Unfortunately, I was working a W-2 job all of this time where I was working almost 100 hours a week. It was about 98 hours per week in the oil industry. And it just wasn't sustainable for me. I burned out is what happened. Six and a half years in, it just kind of imploded on me. It was too stressful. I just couldn't allocate enough time to manage something like that. And so that's where I learned about passive investing, I guess, the real way or (laughs) in a bigger way than having a roommate. And it was two mentors that were in their 60s, their age. They had sold their businesses in the mid-1990s and ever since became full-time LP, limited partner investors in these things called multifamily syndications or multifamily private placements. I had no clue what that meant, literally no clue. But it was these two guys giving me their time and not a tremendous amount of time. I'm just talking about 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, ongoing for a few months to where I really opened my context, so to speak. And I thought I could truly be a hands-off investor. I can still get cash flow. I can still participate in equity upside. I can still have tax advantages. I can still get the monthly checks. I don't have to be the person who's actively doing everything. And that was my light bulb moment. That was my saving grace, so to speak. That's what changed my life. And that was in 2015. And so ever since I do a few different things now in the space, I'm a full-time passive investor. All my investments, 100% of them, I have no material participation in the business, right? I'm just the passive investor partnering with other people. And I try to be that mentor that I was seeking and that I eventually found in 2015 for other people. Somebody saying, this is what I do. It's just one option out there. And if you want to learn about it, I'll give you my time. And so that's kind of brings us up through today. And oh, and then I should add too, I work with Joe Fairless, Ashcroft Capital. They're a multifamily syndication firm. They're just a group. I've partnered with on a lot of deals. I can support them because I put my money where my mouth is. And so that allows me to get access to a lot of different conferences and events where I can reach more people is really kind of what that mission is all about at the end of the day. So 
that's me and my journey in a nutshell and happy to answer any questions for your audience. Yeah, that's great. The mentor thing, there's a lot of talk about that. And that certainly is something that is helpful in our community. We act like mentors to everybody, right? You're a mentor and a mentee at different times. But how did you find mentors in 2015? How did you find someone that, as you said, kind of lit the light bulb and said, hey, here's what I'm going to do? Yeah, it's a great question. I was going to these very small real estate meetup groups in person around the Denver, Colorado area. And I eventually found a much larger and more substantial group that I became part of in Boulder, Colorado. So a little bit of a commute. And, you know, this is before all the Zoom stuff and things like that. And so that's where I found these two mentors. It's really what it was is about 400 accredited investors getting together once per month to just talk investing. There's usually someone who would present a deal. That person would be pre-vetted through someone in the group that said, hey, I've done 10, 15 deals with this operator. This has been my experience. That's how they got the opportunity to speak. And so that's what's so wonderful about what you're creating for people. Not only is it much like that group and what changed my life, but you're doing it on this national scale. You're doing this virtually where people can not have to live in Boulder, Colorado to join it. And so that's what made all the difference, man. That's how it happened. Yeah, that's great. It is interesting. I was researching for this. I'm like, We had 12 people that showed up and you were kind enough to come to a seminar. Of course, it was the height of the pandemic. No one had anything to do anyways. But that really opened our eyes to what we could do with this community is that if you're online now, instead of having 12 people having dinner at a restaurant, we can have 50 people on a Zoom and get someone from anywhere. You know, we can get experts from anywhere to contribute to our community. And it's just one big mentorship. So I really like how you talked about mentoring. So you started in real estate in 2009 and then 2015, you started getting into syndication. So that's for syndication investing, that's a long time, right? This is a relatively new thing, investing in syndications. It really goes back to 2012 in the current state. But so can you talk a little bit about what you've seen that's changed in the seven years that you've been doing this? Because I feel like seven years isn't a super long time, but in the world of syndications, it's ancient, right? Sure. Yeah. Like anything these days, technology wise, especially, right? So the biggest difference is there was, to me anyway, with my naive perspective, I guess you could say, there was a huge lack of communication around this topic. There were not a lot of seminars, not a lot of conferences, not a lot of mentorships, not a lot of training programs. And today, as you know, and everybody listening probably knows, it's completely exploded, right? I mean, this message has gotten out there. And frankly, that's a great thing. <laughs> that's part of my mission is to spread the word, to make sure that people realize it doesn't have to be an index fund in your 401k. And that's what investing is all about, right? Until the day you die. There's a lot more to learn. And there's a lot of reasons, in my opinion, to consider passive income and cash flow and real estate in general and things like that. So that's been the biggest change. The other obvious change is a lot of money has been pumped into the system, not just through stimulus and money printing from the Fed, but like a lot of people's money has actually just come into the space, which has made it a lot harder to find deals. It's a very competitive environment. It's kind of at this point becoming more of a who's who and you got to know brokers, right? And you need relationships with them and you need to prove you've got a track record to close a deal because someone brand new, say I was going to become a brand new general partner today, if I had that ambition, that's going to be so hard to compete 
against the Ashcroft Capitals and other groups out there that have been doing this for so long. So those are some of the major changes. And how do you feel about, because, you know, everyone's got to start somewhere, right? And I don't know that I want to invest with somebody when it's their first deal, but I don't want to also just not invest with them because it's their first deal. So when you see these groups that are training other syndicators, then they're partnering on those deals and they have a bunch of deals coming out. Are you treating those differently when there's a large number of GPs, one guy's experienced and the rest maybe not? How do you analyze those or deal with those kind of groups? Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought this up because literally about a week ago, I was on a presentation for a deal and I discovered it was this model, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. and again, to your point, it's really a struggle because I've done student deals. I've done first and second deals with operators. Okay. I've done the co-sponsor stuff and all of this in the beginning, especially because I just wanted to throw money out there in a diversified way, learn who's who and figure out which groups do I really want to double down with? Who's going to truly under promise and over deliver, so to speak. And I got a level with you, man, in recent years, about the last two years, I have really not done any student deals and any of these co-sponsored deals. And I'm not bashing any of those business models. I'm just saying for myself, my personal experience has been they didn't execute the business plan as well as they perhaps could have if they had been through the ringer 40 times. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, the more you do something, the better you get, hopefully. And that's just the thing. Sometimes you get bailed out because the market is good. You bought a property at a good price at the right time and blah, blah, blah. But a huge portion of what the overall return can become is about the operator's ability to actually execute the business plan according to what they're telling you. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's interesting because I didn't know that I had a strategy when I started, but my strategy is similar to you. It's kind of like a shotgun approach. I find as many sponsors as I can. I qualify them. I'm not investing with people I don't think are going to do a good job, but I'm trying to invest in a lot of different deals, a lot of different sponsors, so that a few years from now, when I've proven out those best sponsors, I can go heavy into them. And it sounds like that's similar to your approach. And now you're just dealing with the class A sponsors, perhaps. But how do you vet a sponsor then? Because obviously, you're probably investing with a lot of the same sponsors now that you've been doing this for a while. But when a new sponsor, maybe it's experienced and isn't one of these partners that we're talking about, but how do you vet that sponsor and make sure that, okay, this is someone I want to wire 50 or $100,000 to? Yeah, great question. Again, I had it all backwards in 2015. And it was like, show me the deal, show me the numbers, what are the returns? And that's what I was looking at. And it was like, well, if this deal's 20% and this one's 18, I'm going to do the 20, right? I mean, pretty common sense. <laughs> yeah. or, or so I thought. Until you realize, to my point earlier, that if they can't actually execute their business plan, that 20% can quickly go to a 10% return, right? Now you're underperforming what you thought it was. So here's how I do it and not giving any kind of financial advice to anybody, just saying this is my personal process. I start first with my own goals and where I'm trying to get in five years, 10 years, 20 years, et cetera. I'm looking at what kind of investment vehicle would be appropriate for getting me to that goal? Some people, quite frankly, have net worth goals. I'm starting at whatever today and I want to have $3 million net worth and that's it, right? It's just like a money goal. Well, you don't necessarily need to be in cash flow stuff if you're just trying to get your net worth up, for example. Other people are like, hey, 
I'm overworked. I'm stressed out. I'm a doctor. I can't do these 60 hour weeks anymore. I need to go 30 hours a week. I need to retire. So they might be more inclined to look at passive income investing. And so that's where you got to start. Is it passive income? Is it equity and growth? Is it a combination of the two, which is kind of more or less where I lie is somewhere in the middle, like a value add business model that you're getting cash flow coupons monthly, but then you're also getting some equity upside, hopefully upon the sale. So hybrid mix. Now, secondly, you got to have some kind of fundamental understanding of what you're investing in to your point, right? So you got to do these podcasts and have mentors and read books and you don't have to do a tremendous amount of that, but you need to understand multifamily versus self-storage versus mobile home parks, cash flow versus growth, private placements and how they work, et cetera, so that you can identify the risks, right? So that you can read through a PPM and know what's going on or hire an attorney to do so, but at least have the know-how to do that. (laughs) So all of this is happening before you even look at a deal, right? And then what I'm doing is I'm looking at reputation of the operator. I'm Googling them. I'm YouTubing them. I'm listening to them. I'm getting on the phone with them. If I can, I'm trying to meet them in person like you and I have done at some conferences and events. That's all part of my due diligence. And I'm looking at what's their philosophy? What's their strategy? Do they specialize in doing one thing and they do it real well and they've done it a lot? Or is it like, hey, we do everything, a little short-term rental, a little new development, a little self-storage, a little house flipping. That's a red flag to me these days because you can't be an expert in everything. So I like groups who specialize and have a track record. And then from there, you got to look at markets. And again, you need a macro level about markets. Why are people moving to certain areas, looking at tax implications to where you're investing? What companies are there? Is the population growing or declining? There's so many things, right? We could sit here for an hour and talk about each line item of criteria, but you just need to have a macro level as a passive investor. You don't have to be the expert. That's the beauty of being a passive investor. You're letting the experts do their job. It's like investing in a public company. If I'm going to go invest in a like Microsoft or Apple or something as a company, I'm going to leave it to the team to figure it out. They're the engineers, the designers, the marketers. I'm trusting that they know what they're doing and I just want to invest in their business. I don't have to be smarter than them. And so anyway, it all gets down to doing your due diligence that way. And the last thing is the deal. Does the deal match your criteria? Again, monthly distributions, quarterly, no distributions. You got to look at this stuff and potential returns and how conservative are they underwriting that deal? What's the age of that property? What's around the surrounding areas of that property? This is all where it gets kind of technical at the very end, but you got to get to the point where you're looking at the right deals, because otherwise it's easy to get caught in analysis by paralysis, right? These days I joke about it. I'm in the business of unsubscribing these days because I'm on everybody's list. My email has been circulated out there to the whole planet. And so I'm sitting here and when I see a new development in San Francisco, that's 40 units, I'm out. I don't invest in 40 units. I don't do new development and I don't invest in San Francisco. So I'm in the business of finding operators doing what I'm looking for. Yeah. And you have to get there though, right? You mentioned it. You have to start somewhere. And my first deals, none of them are things I would do today. One of them's horrible, but none of them are, I wouldn't look at those and go, oh, those are terrible deals, but I certainly wouldn't seek them out or go looking for them or even invest in them again, because I've learned so much like you, I'm sponsor first, deal last kind of approach. So I want to ask you, there's a lot of, I don't even know what to call them, sponsor accumulators, sponsor consolidators, The person who goes out and 
isn't an expert in anything. Like you said, you don't want a sponsor doing 10 different things, but there's some of these groups that go and vet a sponsor in like three or four different asset classes. And then they're capital raising for those specific sponsors. So you can go to them and they vetted the sponsor, they vetted the deals, and you can kind of just jump on with them if you need a new asset class. How do you feel about those kind of operations where you're not investing directly with the sponsor, but kind of through a capital raiser who might know a lot about the asset class, but isn't the operator? Yeah, your listeners might know the the term fund of funds. And this has been around a long time, and especially in like the publicly traded world. When you think about hedge funds, a lot of them are basically the same thing. You're vetting whoever the person is behind the scenes. I don't even think it's a hedge fund, but we'll use the example of like Carl Icahn, famous investor, right? So he has this master limited partnership. It's publicly traded. You're investing with Carl. He's investing himself, most of his net worth in this fund. He's going out and buying and investing in individual businesses. Or maybe another example would be Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Same thing. So real estate and well, really just investing is really a people business at the end of the day. So I think if you know, like, and trust who you're investing with, there's nothing wrong with that kind of model. It certainly brings benefits like diversification and obvious things like that. But you better be working with someone who's competent. I guess I'm always the guy that's like, I like you, I know you, I trust you, but how long you been doing this and what's your background and why do you think you have a competitive edge here? Clearly, we know that Icon and Buffett have track record and experience, but a lot of people are starting funds from scratch. And so I would just be asking about their personal background and experience. You said you want to make sure they're competent. How do you gauge that? It's hard to evaluate because these deals are so long-term, so illiquid. Like, How do you know if someone's competent? Is it just their experience or is there something else you look at? Well, I would look at experience in general. It doesn't have to be doing this specific thing, but what makes them feel like they have a competitive edge? I'm just trying to read between the lines. Is this person naive? It'd be the same question you might ask someone opening a new restaurant. Have you opened a restaurant before? What were the results? Did it do well? Did it fail? You know, I'm just curious. And if it failed, that's not always a terrible thing. What did you learn from that experience? And what are you doing differently this go around to ensure that something like that doesn't happen? A lot of people come into the syndication space from various backgrounds. Maybe it's engineering, maybe it's military, whatever it may be. They may have great fundamental skill sets of discipline and they're a workaholic and they're going to make it happen and they're moral people. And there's nothing wrong with investing with somebody who's got a lot of experience in other things and now has done the research or found a mentor or joined a program where they've learned this business and now they're going to apply that skill set to this business. So let me simplify it for your listeners. How likely is it that the person you're investing with can actually pull off the business plan? That's the question I'm asking as an investor. And it's just that at the end of the day. It's simply that question. Hey, Left Fielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So you are a investor relations person. 
So I'm assuming you get a lot of questions when people are trying to vet a sponsor, they're talking to you, right? So what is one question you always would ask a sponsor as you're vetting them, if you can think of just one main question? And then also, I don't know if this might be a harder question, but what is a question people ask, but really, it isn't really necessary? Like from your viewpoint as a investor relations person? Sure. Yeah. These are two awesome questions, by the way. And I would say the first one, in my personal opinion, is show me the track record. And it's, again, I'm not saying if they don't have a track record, never invest with them. That's not the point. It's just the number one thing, in my opinion, that can show you, like, again, let's use a public stock example. Look at the track record of the stock. Has it been going up and up and up and up year after year, decade after decade? Well, that tells you something, doesn't it, right? Or is it a brand new company just IPOing today and you don't know if they're going to flop tomorrow and go bankrupt, right? So the number one thing I ask for and look at is the experience and track record. Okay, there's that. A lot of, unfortunately, irrelevant questions, I guess you could say. I am of the philosophy that there's no stupid questions. You should ask every question you have. You really should. It's going to give you peace of mind at the end of the day. That being said, I have had people get lost in the weeds. I won't invest in that property because it has a flat roof. I won't invest in that property because it's a 1979 property and I only do 1980 and newer. It's kind of beside the point. It's good to have criteria, but it's like, if that group has bought a dozen 1979 properties and done exceptionally well, I'm not going to hold them back and say, I only do 1980 or newer. Sorry. <laughs> so right. things like the, don't get lost in the weeds, the little stuff, try to be a little more macro level as a passive investor. That's my advice. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. So in your role also, because you're so active in the community, you must be get exposed to a ton of different syndicators, different asset classes. How do you avoid what we call the shiny object syndrome, like running after the next cool thing mm-hmm. and only choose asset classes that match your investment strategy? How do you deal with that? I know I struggle because I see something new and I'm like, I got to go get that. But it might not fit my strategy, which finally, after a couple of years, I decide I needed a strategy. But I often veer off of it because there's something shiny and new. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, it's a valid question and it's a tough question and it's different for each person. But for me, it's knowing yourself, your goals, like we talked about, where you're trying to get in five years, 20 years, et cetera. Let's use this example. My goal, example purposes only, is 15 grand a month passive income or something like that upon retiring. Okay, cool. So here comes the shiny object, right? It's a cryptocurrency that doesn't pay any cash flow. Does that help me? It really doesn't. And so if you can stay true to your goals and your criteria, it makes it a lot easier. Number two is I use the 80-20 rule. And that's been said a million times in different ways. People take that with different meetings. To me, it means invest 80% in what you know and understand the best, what makes logical sense or what you have personal experience in or what you've done the most research on. You want to be 80% because you're taking less risk is what's happening. The more you know, in something, the less risk you're taking. 20%, I diversify. I do the crypto, let's say. I'm just going to play around with it. I'm going to go stick 20 grand there and see what happens. Self-storage, mobile home parks, ATM machines, first lien notes, publicly traded REITs. I don't want to be a one-trick pony because the 80% I'm focused on primarily might change in the future. 
you fast forward 20 years and it's like, hey man, multifamily doesn't make any sense, right? It's cash flowing 1%. There's no equity upside in it. Well, I need to know other things. <laughs> I can't just know that. And so that's where I might make a pivot to some other asset class. That's great. That's well said. So then how do you approach a sponsor who's entering a new asset class? And I know you have some experience with this. When someone's moving from multifamily to self-storage, as I've said before, and I say all the time, I don't want to be anybody's guinea pig. If you're great at multifamily, it doesn't mean you're good at storage. It also doesn't mean you won't be good at storage. But how do you evaluate that? And how should a passive investor be looking at that? Because that's happening a lot now where really established sponsors like Ashcraft are moving into new asset classes. It's not a bad thing, but how do we evaluate them on a new paradigm? Sure. I think this is the critical conversation around this topic is knowing your risk tolerance. Like not many people talk about risks in general, and it should be a wider conversation. And it is with people I talk to all the time because I point out they, for example, I was on a, I mentioned that webinar the other day that had all these co-sponsors and things. They were bringing a brand new property manager from out of state into a state they've never managed in, into an asset that they've never managed, the class of property. To me, that's a big risk. Your property manager is where it's at. They're the boots on the ground. They're the ones running the day-to-day. If they fail, your business plan fails. To me, that was too big of a risk for me personally to chance. And some people, I'm sure, obviously, some people are going to do that deal. (laughs) And either they say, that's not a risk. I don't think that's very risky at all. Or they failed to identify that as a risk, something like that. So I'd say, know your risk tolerance. And there's people with so much higher risk tolerances than I have in this super speculation space or startup companies, venture capital, angel investing. I don't do any of that stuff, man. I'm way too risk averse for it. But that's not to say someone listening shouldn't do it. It's just it doesn't match my risk profile. So know your risk is the answer I give. Okay. And a couple of topical things here. Interest rates are rising. Inflation is an issue. Rents are rising like crazy. I don't know how sustainable all this is. How do you factor all of that in when you're analyzing a deal with bridge debt or adjustable rate debt, interest only debt? How do you figure that out? Like, are you avoiding those deals? Are you still looking at those deals, but you need rate caps or how are you looking at this kind of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So usually in the larger commercial properties, as you're aware, when someone says we're putting long-term debt on something, they're usually talking about like 10 years. (laughs) So it's not like your single family home with a 30-year fixed rate, that kind of thing. And most often these deals are changing hands every three to five years on average, at least historically, that's kind of been the case. So what I look for is a couple things. They're putting a longer debt term on the property than what they intend to hold it for. That's important to me. You don't want to run out of time, like you said, on a bridge loan that expires in two years. And all of a sudden you go from a 3% to an 8% loan. And now the deal's in trouble or you might have to sell it at a loss or whatever might happen, right? So I generally avoid bridge loan debt. It's Again, I'm not bashing people's deals out there who are doing it. There could be reasons why. There could be other precautions that are in place. I tend not to do it. Also, interest rate caps, you mentioned that. It's kind of like an insurance policy. You lock in today at 4%, let's say, for example, you might get a cap at 5% interest rate. So if the Fed says, hey, we're going to 8% interest rates, you're capped at 5 You can also look at, are they doing an assumable loan, which means the next buyer can actually keep your loan structure with the lower interest rate in place. That's a big thing to look at there. And in general, 
the macro level of your question is a lot of people assume that if interest rates go up, the price is going to fall hard on the real estate. Well, in a lot of ways, that's generally true. But we also have a severe lack of inventory right now, a huge demand for affordable housing. Inflation's usually a great thing for real estate in general. Rents are going to rise with inflation. The name of the game with multifamily and cell storage and mobile home parks is net operating income. If you get that net operating income up or keep it the same, you generally are holding the value on the property. So yeah, if it costs more to get a more expensive loan, that's going to hurt net operating income. But simultaneously, if you bump the rents 300 bucks a month times 400 units, you're kind of offsetting that factor. You know what I mean? So that's why I invest in value add because it gives you a little bit of margin for error, a little bit of cushion that the market might soften 20%, but you've also increased the value 20%. So hopefully you're not losing any money. That makes sense. I really like the net operating income. That's the metric to look at. You're right, because as that's increasing, you're adding value and that goes right to the bottom line. So what do you think the effect of the reduced bonus depreciation will have on the market or investors, right? Because the bonus depreciation for the past, I don't know how many years has been 100%, meaning you can accelerate a bunch of stuff and get a big tax loss in year one. Next year, it's going to 80%. And I think after that, it's 60 and then maybe down to 50. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, people are talking about it, just saying, hey, it's happening. But I haven't heard a whole lot of conversation on how will this affect everything, right? The market, the investors, like are people going to behave a lot differently because they're missing that 20% or is that 20% just going to be in a different year? So it's fine. Maybe that'll extend to the hold period. Yeah. Here's my personal take. Having worked in investor relations for many years, talking to literally thousands of investors, if I had to put a percentage to the amount of investors doing these deals solely on the tax benefits, okay? Like that's like their number one drive. I would say it's less than 25% in my personal opinion. Secondly, I would argue that most people, quite frankly, including myself, don't even really understand the tax code anyway (laughs) and all the benefits they're getting or not getting in the first place. The other thing I would say is you got to remember a lot of people are doing these kinds of investments inside of IRA accounts where that's an irrelevant conversation anyhow. And so you kind of pool all that together, the lack of understanding and education, and then the fact that it's slowly reducing over time, blah, blah, blah. The fact that most people didn't know it went into play anyway in 2017, I say it's not going to have a huge impact. That's my personal opinion. I think what would make a much more substantial change is something like when they were proposing, we're going to get rid of 1031 exchanges. That's a pretty big deal. There's people that have been rolling money for decades. And if they all of a sudden were caught with their pants down and they owe a million dollars in taxes, that's a bad thing. (laughs) So hopefully that doesn't come up, but that would be a lot more substantial. That makes sense. So as a multifamily investor, when looking at this from the passive side, because you invest passively in deals as well, What's one or two metrics that you really look at? Because when I'm looking at a deal, I don't want to re-underwrite it as if I'm an active investor. I'm trusting the sponsor. They did their job. I vetted them. I think they know what they're doing. So now I'm looking at their deal. What are a couple of metrics that you really focus on for your kind of analysis of the deal? Sure. So here's my general philosophy. Trust, but verify. I obviously trust everybody I invest with, or I wouldn't give them a dollar of my money, right? But I also don't 
want them to be naive or maybe overlooking something that's pretty obvious. And so here's what I'll do. They'll say, for example, we're buying this property. The rents today are $1,000 per month for a two bedroom, just making up that kind of metric. I'm going to get on apartments.com and I'm going to look at other apartment buildings in the area and what they're renting for and what condition they're in. If it's a market nearby, I'm going to go do that in person. And so I'm going to see, are they being a realist? If they say we're going to bump rents from a thousand a month to 1400 per month in two years or three years, that's pretty aggressive. So I need to know that older building comps are in that range or newer buildings. And I've seen some deals where they're just quite frankly, they're unrealistic. You have a brand new luxury A-class apartment building at $1,500 a month. And here they're like, we're buying this 1960 property and it's going to be $1,450 a month. It's like, no, it's not (laughs) because no one's renting that thing at that price point. So trust but verify. Do the Google drive-by thing if you can't go visit the property in person. Ask all your questions to the sponsor ahead of time. I've made that mistake early on. I forgot to ask some pretty critical questions. I wired the money. I'm in the deal. And it's like, oh, you know, this is the quarterly distributions, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I should have probably asked that. Not a huge deal, but part of my criteria nonetheless. And then like we discussed earlier, I always look at track record and reputation and history of the company too. So Excellent. So the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? And it can be more than one. Real estate related, if you got it, if you got something fun, we're up for listening to that too. A few years ago, I was speaking with Joe Fairless. He runs the best ever real estate investing advice podcast. And I said, I want to do a video segment specifically for passive investors, but I want to call it the actively passive investing show. And I want to highlight all of the active components involved in being a passive investor to let people know that it's not fantasy land out there. It's not just you click a button and you're done and one day you wake up and you're a multimillionaire. Like there are a lot of active components to this. And so I'm going to plug my own podcast, the Actively Passive Investing Show. It's on YouTube and it's under once a week on Joe's podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you. I didn't know about that one. So I'm definitely going to take a look at that. That's fantastic. I guess this is the actual last question. That was the second to last. If listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I give my time back to others. I do that through 15 to 30 minute calls for free. Anyone and everyone, there's no agenda. It's not tied directly to Ashcroft Capital. So if you just want to talk passive income, real estate investing in general, you have any questions I didn't clearly address here, you can go to, it's actually on Ashcroft's website, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis. And I've got my calendar link on there. Additionally, if you don't want to take that route, I'm on LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets, Instagram, Facebook. So reach out. I'm always happy to be a resource and connect. Let me know your feedback on this episode and any questions I can help with. That's great. We appreciate that. I think when someone like you who's so in this industry is willing to just give time, it's on the investors who want to learn something to take advantage of that. And so that's awesome that you do that and that you're willing to mentor and help people. We all need to give back. That's one thing I really like about this industry is it's so open and people are so willing to help. Like you were taking it all the way back to the Columbus Passive Investing Group. We called ourselves CPIG and you hopped on and did a 45 minute presentation. It's still, it's recorded. It's on our website. It's our third meeting, but our first one with a guest. And now as then, you've been fantastic. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks everyone for tuning in. 
We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. I really enjoy my conversation with Travis and this one was fantastic as usual. There's some similarities. He's probably a little bit ahead of his of me in his journey and the shotgun approach to sponsors is kind of what I've been doing where, like he said, when he started, he was investing small amounts with multiple sponsors, trying to test everybody out, see where he got to. And now he's at the point where I'll be in a couple of years where he's had deals go full cycle. He's tested out the sponsors. And now instead of going with a bunch of sponsors in smaller amounts, he's taking bigger swings at the sponsors that he knows, likes and trusts. And those also happen to be more experienced sponsors because as you get into this, the more you learn, the more you dig deeper and the more you find the sponsors that you want to deal with. So I thought that was a great approach. He used to start with the deal where he'd analyze the deal and then he kind of wouldn't even pay much attention to the sponsor. Now it all starts with the sponsor, which again, that's kind of how our community is looking at these things as well. You start with the sponsor and then you drill down. Once you're comfortable with the sponsor, then you start getting deals and start analyzing those. We're of like mind on that. He also, I liked how he commented about starting with your goals and those determine your strategy and your investment. And it makes complete sense. And it's obvious when you say it out loud. But so many times, so many of us start with the investments and then figure out our goals from there or come up with some strategy that doesn't go with our goals. I know that's how I started. I started investing for appreciation when I quit my job and needed cash flow, but I wasn't connecting those two. And Travis gives really great advice for put your goals down and then everything can follow from those. And then it's not just show me the money, it's show me the track record. And he talked about that numerous times on this podcast, his track record means a lot. That doesn't mean you can't invest with someone who's newer. They've had success before, they might have success again. And of course you hope that they will. And then NOI, net operating income, that's the driver of everything. And we've talked about financials, we've looked into all this stuff, but he's right. That's the most important part is if you're growing your net operating income, then you can deal with things like interest rate increases and other economic factors that get in the way. The most powerful thing uh, Travis said was the mentorship, right? He found mentors when he was just getting going in this and it was part of a community as we always talk about here is community is powerful. He found some mentors that were willing to give him time. And so now what does he do? He shares his time within anybody who calls him up. So if you're new, if you're experienced, if you're inexperienced, if you've been doing this forever or you're just getting into it, why wouldn't you spend 15 minutes or 30 minutes on a call with Travis. He offered it to you. He's a guy who's been doing this for a long time. He knows what he's doing and connect with him and see what comes of it. I mean, it's free and there's no reason 
why all of us shouldn't be calling up Travis and taking some of his expertise and soaking it in. So that's my recommendation. Great talking to Travis as always. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>